Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Country Music Made Me. Thank you so much for joining us once again. On today's episode, we are excited to be welcomed by Sycamore. She grew up in rural Alberta, Canada, and listening to music was a big part of her childhood, but it wasn't until her later teens that she picked up the guitar and started to play. She released her debut CD, Pedal in 2013, and in 2015, after following Rhett Akins on Twitter, she received a private message from him saying he had listened to some of her music and he was interested in helping support her career. He even signed her to his new publishing company. From there, she made the official move down to Nashville, and she's been recording and releasing music ever since with the recent release of her album, Pinto. So please enjoy our conversation with Sycamore. I'm actually from a place that you know well. I'm from Kelowna, BC. Oh, jealous. So jealous. I, way long ago, I made a record, like my first kind of like indie record that I've like, you know, I was just trying, I don't even think I was a full-time musician yet, but I was like, I'm going to save my money and spend it on an album for some reason. And we did most of it, I think. Well, we did a bit in, uh, gosh, where is it? Vernon, which is really close to right. Coloma. Yeah. And then we did two days of tracking at uh, a studio called Bottega. I don't know if it's there anymore. I don't uh, know. I know where you're talking about and I've been there and it's absolutely beautiful. But yeah, I don't know uh, over the past couple of years if they're still there or not. Yeah, I know it was it, it was owned by a guy who like, uh, really liked music sort of as like a hobby, but like he, he made a bunch of money doing something else. I think he was in oil or something. So then he like bought this sort of little farm and there was like a full blown recording studio and a guest house where people could come and stay. And I think there was also like animals, like llamas and stuff. And it was really fun. I stayed, I remember I stayed for a night and, uh, it was a cool little experience, but nice. anyway, interior BC, aside from the fires is, is really beautiful. So. Yeah, exactly. And that CD that you recorded there, was that pedal or was that even before pedal? I think that was pedal. Yeah. Because that was sort of like my first crack at really recording anything original. I think I had done a few covers and stuff prior to that. And then, uh, I got, it's like so fun to look back on it. Cause it was like, I don't think I would ever have the guts to do it the way I did it back then. It was like, I um, raised, I was trying to get grant money. I'd applied for grants, but I didn't know if I was going to get them. And I, I had booked like a countrywide tour, which was like really silly to do. Like, I didn't know if I was going to have the funding to make this record. And I was already like booking a tour and like booking the studio time. Like I booked everything before I even knew I had the money. Oh, wow. And I was just sort of like, if I don't get the grant, like the grant was the bulk of the money I was probably going to be using. And I was like, if I don't get it, I'll just find some other way to do it. And like, there would have been no time. And like, miraculously, I got the grant. I did some crowdfunding. Like I did like a GoFundMe and we were able to just scrape up probably like the minimum of what you need to budget for an album. And then we made it like, it was all done and dusted in like 14 days. Like it was on my doorstep in 14 days. Oh, so wow. like absolute lunacy. And that's just classic being young and naive and not knowing how hard it's going to be. Yeah. Cause like now that I've like been around the block once or twice, I'm like, 
you were crazy. <laughs> but anyway, it's a good story to tell. Well, exactly. And that's an awesome segue because Country Music Made Me is all about the journey. I love to go back and talk about this journey that has brought you to here. And so we sort of started at pedal there, but I want to go even farther back than that in the beginnings of this love of music. And we have to start at your family farm the piece of land where you grew up. Now, I believe it's been in the family for more than a hundred years. Your grandfather, your father, and you have all been raised on that land. So was it your great-grandfather who first owned that? Yes. Uh, he immigrated from Sweden. And I think briefly, we have family heritage in Chicago, actually. And then okay. at some point, he, so I don't think he immigrated straight to Alberta. I think he spent a bit of time in the States and then ultimately settled in Alberta and uh, found this land, built the house. It's the house that my parents still live in and that I was raised in and my grandpa was raised in. And so, like we've added on to it. We've renovated it a couple of times now. And so it looks nothing like it used to. But the land itself, yeah, it's been about 120-ish years in my family. Wow. and it's sort of manifested in different ways. So like it started out, I think they were, I'm probably going to get some of this wrong, but like my family's always been farmers, but they've, they've farmed different things over the years. So I think maybe they started with uh, wheat and maybe canola, like maybe they were more grainish farmers. And then they moved into sort of cow, calf, like cattle and stuff like that. And then my dad was the one who turned it into a feedlot operation. So it's kind of had okay. different manifestations over the years. And uh, it's still a feedlot to this day. So it's cool that everyone sort of had their own spin on it, you know, as the generations move on. But it's always, you know, there's some constant like the house and the land and the family and everything else. So it's been cool. Is anyone thinking of taking over the land? I have one of each. I have a brother and a sister. Oh, okay. And my brother currently like works for my dad, but like, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I don't know if he has any aspirations. My sister got married and she lives in Ontario. So that's oh, okay. probably out of the question. Uh, it's funny. Her husband is taking over his family business, so to speak. So it's like, oh, okay. they're kind of doing it just on the other side of the family. Right. Um, and my brother like works for my dad and, and I think he enjoys it, but my brother's also, he's a musician like me. And so he has a lot of musical aspirations. And so I think that might be where he ultimately wants his life to go, but I don't want to speak for anybody. I don't know what anybody's plans are. Yeah, exactly. And that Western lifestyle side of your family, I saw that your mom is a barrel racer and your dad was a steer wrestler, which is like crazy. That's like a manly man right there. So, and I saw that you were brought up barrel racing as well. I think it was 13. I saw a photo of you barrel racing. So how did that, were you raised on that around that sort of rodeo and Western lifestyle? Yeah, for sure. Um, so my mom and dad met rodeoing. That's kind of how they uh, became acquainted. And they were kind of friends first, I think maybe for a couple of years. And then they their paths just kept crossing. And I think they were like dating other people. And then it just like, you know, finally they got the timing right. But uh, yeah, so my mom still barrel races. Like she's not, she was professional. Like she was, I guess, a, technically a professional athlete when I was young. And okay. then, you know, as we, as we, the kids got a little older and, and needed more of her time, she kind of hung up her gloves, but she has one horse that she's still training. 
And she's been taking to a few, like, I guess you would call it kind of like amateur events just to kind of get her exposed. And uh, the last year or so, she's really kind of flung herself back into it. Um, she and my dad are grandparents now. And that like my sister, not me, <laughs> my sister has kids. And so they've been really enjoying being grandparents, I think for the last couple of years. And uh, that's almost been kind of their hobby. Like whenever they have time, they'll fly to Ontario and see my sister. So just as of late, I'd say the last year or so, my mom's really been able to get back in with this one mare she's working on. And it's fun. Honestly, it's like some of the best social media content that like performs well for me is what I like go to rodeos with my mom and like film. Cause like people, that was the weird thing for me was like, I grew up in that and it's very normal for me. And it took right. me a long time to understand, like the further away from home that I got, the more it really sparked conversation for people to be like, wow, really? Like your parents, they rodeoed and you grew up riding horses. And like, it's kind of this really foreign, exciting thing for other people to hear about. And to think at one point I was almost bored with it just because I was so used to being around it. I was like, oh, nobody wants to hear about how I was raised. And now it's like one of my manager, in fact, took that picture. I think it's on Instagram, the picture of my dad steer wrestling. Yeah. He actually put it on one of our laminates for our, when we go on tour for a live show, like the front is a picture of me and it says Sycamore all access. And on the back, it's literally a picture of my dad wrestling a steer. That's and I'm awesome. just like, why, why are we doing this? He's like, it's just such a cool picture. <laughs> so it's very entertaining. It's probably more entertaining for other people. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. And within your love of music, let's talk about that. Now, first of all, talk about the Elton John's greatest hit album and how that inspired you at a young age for this love of music. It did. And, you know, I don't even know if it's, it's really in rotation anymore because Elton has so many greatest hits compilations now. Yeah. And tried to look for that specific one online because the one that was in our house growing up it was a cd and it was all like yellow like the cd itself like the jacket was yellow and it said elton's greatest hits and then the cd itself was kind of this sort of mustard yellow and it had like um crocodile rock and saturday nights all right for fighting and like all of his i I want to say like his 80s greatest hits but it's, he's almost like bob dylan now where it's like he has chapters of greatest hits instead of just like his all-time favorite or greatest yeah hits. absolutely so anyways that we had very little music and very little cds in the house it was mostly just the radio and so i stumbled upon elton's <laughs> greatest hits and that was like i remember us as kids obsessively listening to crocodile rock we thought it was the coolest thing especially being kids who lived in the country and didn't have a ton of exposure to I mean rock and roll music first of all and you know like British rock it was so foreign and like that was it was so melody heavy and it was so edgy and daring and it just like I must have been five or six and it just kind of lit me up I was like this is so cool I I can't even fathom all the emotions this elicits and so wow that Harry Connick Jr. was another one that we used to listen to um, and then later on, I actually went down, we had a kind of a creepy basement for a while. We've since renovated it, but for a while it was like a dungeon and we kept some stuff down there, but it was kind of icky. And I braved it one time and went down there and I found this big, I think it was like my, my aunt who had lived with my dad for a while years before, uh, she had like a big thing of tapes that she oh, left okay. behind. And I found, I think it was the thriller album, Michael Jackson and like 
a lot of other great kind of iconic rock albums. And it was such a fun, looking back, it was a really fun way to discover music because no one was instructing me on how to consume it. You know, it was just like, this is really cool. And like, I got to pick my own favorite songs. I got to have my own experience with it. Instead of someone being like, you have to listen to this because it's really good. It was like just purely my own experience. And I think it helped shape kind of my identity as a music lover. And so, yeah, there's been a lot of kind of almost movie-esque sort of little moments for me in terms of stumbling upon music, but it all led me here, so. Yeah, exactly. And when did you stumble upon playing? When did you first pick up the guitar and start playing yourself? Guitar, kind of late, honestly. Um, I, I, I meddled in a lot of sort of different instruments. Like I played keyboards, probably just like, I think we, t- we took piano lessons as kids, but then that's never very fun because you don't really get to play anything that you want to play. It's all yeah. boring classical pieces. Exactly. So I, don't really, I don't know that I retained a ton of information from piano lessons, but then later on in my life, my mom got a keyboard because she also plays and she got one for Christmas or for her birthday. And so it ended up just being something that was laying around. It was like an electric keyboard. And that's when I actually started to mess around and do stuff that I wanted to do. Cause I was like, I want to learn how to play this song that I keep hearing on the radio. So I just kind of kept messing around kind of just by ear and kind of doing it wrong probably. And so like, that was how I got my <clears throat> sort of like map of how chords work and how key signatures work. And it was all very like exciting. Cause I could, again, I could sort of control where the boat was going. So that was kind of how I got acquainted with, maybe like the Nashville number system or like music theory, not classical music theory, but just how the programs work. Right. And then, uh, it really wasn't until I was in college and I had a friend who had a guitar and she like taught me a couple chords. And then I became a little bit obsessed with it. And like, then I realized you could use a capo and you could play in like any key that you wanted with three chords. And so I just started playing and singing a lot. So I, to guitar, I came a little bit late, like I was probably 18 or so. And then it became kind of my main instrument almost by default, just because it's a lot easier to lug around than a keyboard. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And And, uh, I wanted to ask you about 19, I think, I think it was right around your 19th birthday that you said you had played your very first show. It was in like a coffee shop around your hometown or, or where you're going to college and you knew three chords at the time. And so I just wanted to ask about that show and take me through that experience. So you're right. I'm very impressed with all of the backstory that you know so far, actually. Um, so this was a, it wasn't a coffee shop. It was a restaurant in kind of my, the town that I went to high school in. Okay. And it ended up being a restaurant that I would later waitress in. <laughs> like oh, I, hadn't, wow. I hadn't worked there yet, but I, the reason I got the show at all was that I had quite a few friends that worked at this restaurant and they were like, we want to have, we want to start putting live music for our like summer series out on the patio and you're a musician, right? Like you should come and play. And I was like, yeah, sure. And legit, like knew maybe four chords in total and maybe like six or seven songs kind of right. off my heart. Oh, okay. And yeah, I I think you're right. I think it was like around my 19th. That's when we were celebrating my 19th birthday. And so, you know, I played a couple songs. I think we ate at the restaurant and then we went to Dairy Queen and got cake. And I think that was kind of how I rang in 19. But then, yeah, later, maybe like the following summer, I got a job there and I worked at that. It was it was Boston Pizza. You know, Boston Pizza. Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, 
it was the, that franchise. So I worked at the one in Strathmore. And then later on, I actually worked at a different location uh, near Chestermere Lake, uh, not far away from Strathmore. So right. yeah, it ended up like being one of my first venues and kind of one of my first serving jobs. <laughs> so a lot of history there at BP's. That's amazing. And we talked about Pedal, the CD off the start. And I wanted to ask about an experience with that album that I saw you talk about that at one point in October of 2013, Brad Paisley, I guess he was probably coming through Calgary and you had the chance to, I think, go onto the bus and you played your album for his band. Yes. How do you know that? <laughs> like, that's I crazy. love my research. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, so my brother, like I said, he's a musician and he uh, just kind of through online forums and stuff became friends with a guy who became Brad's guitar tech eventually. Oh, okay. So that was kind of our in was we knew this guy who was uh, not in the band specifically, but he was you know handling a lot of the band. And so that sort of for a couple of years that gave us kind of free tickets every time he came to town and we would get to go backstage. And like once we did meet Brad, uh, they invited us to come watch their sound check. And so we were just like standing on the side of the, that was, uh, that was before the bus thing. I think I was still in high school when we did that, but anyways, so then, yeah, I have this, this album that I made and we, we go on the bus and, and I'm a little embarrassed. I don't really think it was my idea. I think I brought my CD at my brother's sort of request to be like, you should show, like, at least just show them that you made an album. And then one of them, I think, grabbed it. And we're like, well, let's throw it in. Let's throw it in the player. And I was like a little embarrassed. And everybody sat around and we listened to like, you know, a couple tracks off of it. And yeah, like it was really surreal. And and they were all honestly like, like I have, you know, it's always hard as a musician when you've, when you look back on your old work, because you feel like you've improved a lot since then. And so like, absolutely, it's, it's borderline cringy for me to listen to some of my earlier stuff. But these guys were all so encouraging and like, they were like, yeah, like you should move to Nashville. And like, not, not that they would, but like everybody was so encouraging and we're like, yeah, you've got it. Like you need to just keep pursuing it. And yeah, it was, it was a kind of surreal experience. Brad wasn't there. It was just, just his band, but they're all really nice guys. And so within that, at that point, did you have your focus of being a musician as a career? I think, yes. I don't know how publicly I was talking about it. Like, obviously I guess maybe I, you know, I'd made this album. And so I was some, somewhat thinking about it, but there was a, a long period where I was fairly sheepish about, like, I didn't really want to talk about it. Cause I knew that it, it wasn't, it's not a very practical career path. And I didn't know anybody personally who had pulled it off. And so it was borderline a little, maybe not embarrassing is the word, but just, you know, I was just shy about it because I wasn't right, sure yeah. it was going to work and I didn't want people to see me fall on my face. But at that point, I do think I was, I think I was still in school. I went to college and I think I was in college, but sort of had my sights set on eventually moving to Nashville and just making the jump. But I just needed to figure out, I needed to figure out my point of entry. And so I was still in Calgary at that point, but it was the following year, I guess it was 2014 was my first trip to Nashville ever. And so that was uh, kind of what, what got the ball rolling. And so when you made that first trip to Nashville, was that like more of just a vacation or were you actually going there to sort of scope things out and figure out what a career might look like? So I went with my then manager and uh, we actually, 
cut the beds for self medicine. The the EP that that ended up coming out in 2018, right? We cut, yeah. we recorded a lot of the beds for that. Oh wow! At, at a studio called Welcome to 1979, and it's very like retro and wood paneled and awesome. And yeah, like I, the plan was to never wait four years, but just that's just how things go sometimes. But no, it was technically a work trip. Like there were a lot of vacation things in there because it was my first time. And my mom and my dad came for a bit. And uh, we went, we ended up going to Louisville, which is where they have the Kentucky Derby every year. And like Kentucky and, and Nashville are like probably within an hour, like Nashville's within an hour of the Kentucky border. So one day my mom and I drove and we went to Churchill Downs where they do the Kentucky Derby. We went to the Louisville Slugger Factory where they make all the baseball bats. And we did this underground zip line, like in an old limestone mine. So oh, wow. lots, of, lots of vacation-y stuff. But the first half was very like, we went to to cut the beds for the, for the EP. And we went to the Americana Awards because my manager, one of his other clients was showcasing at the Americana Festival. And so there was a lot of industry stuff that I got to kind of dive into and get my feet wet with. But then kind of the back half was mostly... Um, vacationy stuff. Also, um, that same year I ended up winning a songwriting contest. Yeah. And I remember we, I had to call in and they were going to announce the winner. It was between me and one other guy. And I had to like wait on the line with the radio station. And we were, this was all happening when we were still in Nashville, we were in a hotel in Nashville and I was waiting to find out if I got first or second place. And then live on the radio, they announced that I got it. And so it was really cool for that to be happening in Nashville because wow, I was in yeah. like a songwriter city. And so I was pretty pumped to be getting on a plane back home. But yeah. Now, one one story that's not music related, but I really wanted to hear about it is that song that you won with, Heaven in the Pines, I believe that you may have wrote that on a trip back from Seattle. Yes. And I wanted to ask about that Seattle trip because you had mentioned that you almost were killed in a car accident with a group of grads. Yes. And I don't know um, if you remember that, but I just wanted to ask about it quickly and just about that experience. It's hard to forget near death experiences. <laughs> um, yeah, my we, me and my best friend for a couple of years in a row uh, were able to like we kind of just took a trip every year. And um, it started with when we were like 22 ish. We went to Disney World. And his parents had a timeshare in Florida. And so it was just him and I, we just went to Disney and had a blast. And then the following year, we're like, well, where should we go next? And we both had never been to Seattle. And it was close enough to drive. Um, and we didn't want to have to fly. So we made the trip. And I think we were just there for like three or four days. But on one of our, like our second last night, we were on our way to karaoke in a taxi that was like a Prius. And so it was like pretty precious. And we were going through an intersection and these kids uh, who were, I think they were coming back from prom or going to prom. It was, it was in May. So they were definitely like doing, they were graduating. They were in this big old GM suburban and they ran the red light and we like T-boned them because we were going through the green light. And it's always funny to me because like the Prius, it's designed to do this, but like it was a write-off. Like the Prius crumbled at the front. Like we were all okay. But okay. then like I looked at the other, like at the kids' car, and it didn't even have like a scratch or a dent on it. Like, really? It like it was like a tank. And these kids all got out, and like none of them had ever been in an accident. They were kind of mortified. 
And I remember one of them asking us, cause they, they knew it was their fault. And one of them said like, are we going to go to jail? <laughs> like, no, like the cops are going to come and we're going to fill out some stuff. And like, I had like a minor injury, I think, because truthfully, I don't know. We were going a really short distance and I don't know that we were wearing seatbelts. And so I think I might've like twisted my knee or something. And, uh, so I wasn't super keen on hanging around, but anyway, that was, uh, it was an eventful trip. Uh, and then it got better from there. We went to the outlet mall, <laughs> went to like some kind of off Broadway show that was happening in Seattle. And so, I don't know, it was a really good trip. And then, yeah, I, uh, the lyric for heaven in the pines came when we stopped, we crossed the border over, uh, Idaho. That's how we came back into Canada was, uh, we came up through Idaho and we had to pull over at some point because it was just the sunset was so beautiful. And I took this picture and it and it said something about heaven in the pines. Like we just come back the border over uh, into Canada. And I was like, oh, I miss Canada so much. And yeah, I don't know, this lyric heaven in the pines kind of came to me from that image. And I, I logged it away. And when it was time to bring it out, it ended up being the the winning lyric, I guess. That's awesome. And now you mentioned self-medicine. You had started it on that first trip to Nashville. And then, like you say, it was about maybe four years of working on it before it was released. But when it was released, what did that album mean for you in your progression as an artist and towards where you are today? It was kind of pivotal in in a lot of ways because by then I had moved to Nashville. I'd been there for a couple months because I moved at the end of 2017 and this came out like the first week of 2018. And so uh, Houseboat and Better Half had already been put out as singles. And it was, for me, it was sort of my departure from singer songwriter into country artist. Um, I think that was the first release I ever did my first body of work that came out under the country genre. And so, and I was living in Nashville. And so I was kind of like, it was sort of my metamorphosis, I guess, into the artist that I, because you you kind of find out things about yourself as you are being yourself, I guess. And so you ultimately, like you get a glimpse of it when you first start. And then as you realize more of your desires and more of the sound you want to explore, that just, you know, very organically blossoms. And so I think that can be pinpointed as sort of a moment where I was like, I want to go to Nashville. I want to be a country artist. And it kind of, it was marked by self-medicine coming out. Um, It was also the first release that I put out to a streaming platform. Like I I think, I think better half and houseboat might've been put out on some, but like, so this was, I mean, 2018 seems like yesterday, but like, (laughs) yeah everybody was still very sort of on the fence about whether they were going to like join streaming. I remember. Oh, okay. Cause it almost felt like optional at the time and no one really understood it. And everybody knew that the royalties were kind of weird and all this stuff. And so uh, that was the first real release that I put out and we were like, yeah, I guess we're going to do it. We're going to put it on a streaming platform. And we ended up like getting playlisted really well and, and getting a lot of exposure through it. And uh, that was sort of my crash course in how streaming worked from an artist perspective because of that EP as well. So, and we also did, we did a a music video. It was like my first music video. So a lot of kind of firsts for me that came with self-medicine and it was technically my like American 
not album debut, but like since moving to Nashville is my first release. And so in a lot of ways it was like what some Americans first impression of me was. So right. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of just kind of first baby steps from that album or EP. Right. And so of course, with that move to Nashville, a big part of why you did move to Nashville was being contacted by Rhett Akins. Yeah. Um, shortly after, I'm trying to think, I guess it would have been like around 2015, 2016. I had been to the CCMAs in Halifax and uh, I was in this program called Discovery that the CCMA does. I think they still do it. And they kind of take a lot of upcoming artists, like it's sort of a little casting call and then like six acts are chosen. And then you get flown to Toronto and you get introduced to all these publishers and agents. And like, you basically get this sort of streamlined little course on how the music industry works and how you can uh, take your next steps, I guess, because we're all sort of like infant artists. And part of that whole thing was they also flew us to the CCMAs wherever it was going to be that year and ended up being on the East Coast. And part of that was we got to sit like right at the front, like we got to be in all the camera shots and like, you know, it was kind of surreal. So anyway, Thomas Rhett was a performer that year and he was just starting to blow up. I don't even think uh, Die Happy Man had come out yet, but he had like, uh, get me some of that. And um, what's the other one? the tangled up album was out. Right. And so he was, he was pretty hot and he was performing and I, I didn't know much about him if I'm being honest at that point, but he kind of, he impressed me with the live show. And I was like, I think I'm going to follow this guy and, and follow his career. So I followed him on Twitter and then Twitter was like, would you like to follow Rhett Akins? And I, and I didn't put the two together. I had no idea they were father and son at the time. And for whatever reason, I was like, sure. I, you know, what harm could it do? I'm going to follow this guy too. And then like, I don't know, in the same day, I got this private message back from Rhett and it's like from his verified account. And he's like, Hey, I check out your music and I think it's great. And I don't know what your deal is, but uh, if you ever come to Nashville, I, I think I want to help you. And like, it was all very kind of vague. And, and I didn't even know, I didn't know he was like a really prolific songwriter. I didn't really know much about him at all. All I knew oh, okay. was that he, I thought he, I knew he used to be an artist. Like he had the, that ain't my truck song. And that was really all I knew about him. And then I ended up kind of researching who he was a little bit. And I was like, if this is the real guy, like this is kind of crazy that this is happening. And so yeah, for sure. I, I looped my manager in and she talked to him and kind of got the green light from her. She was like, I think this is legit. I think we should do it. And so we, we were planning a trip to Nashville anyway, in a few months after that. And so we, we went and met him, we went to his house and just kind of got acquainted and talked about my goals as an artist and how he could maybe help just as a champion. And then those conversations turned into him saying, I am launching a publishing company and I know you're shopping for a publishing deal. So why don't I just sign you? And so we, that was sort of conversations all through 2016. And then by about 2017, it was a kind of a done deal. And then I moved that fall. And so, yeah, I mean, a really fluky, crazy thing. And I know it doesn't happen to everybody. And so it's, it's a crazy story to tell. And do you think you would have the confidence to move to Nashville? Do you think you would be there today if it wasn't for that interaction? It's hard to say because I always, I had a rule with myself. I knew I wanted to move to Nashville, but I didn't want to be 
there if I didn't have any sort of means of income or, you know, part of it is because I'm Canadian and I need a work visa to be right. there. So, yeah. Like you need to kind of show that an American company wants to employ you. Otherwise you can't exactly work. Right. Yeah. So that was kind of my rule was I was like, I don't, I don't want to move there. I can take trips, but I don't want to move there until I know that I have some kind of a deal, whether it's a record deal or a publishing deal or whatever. And so I guess the answer to that is if I were able to get another pub deal, I I would have probably had the confidence to move. I don't think I would have made the jump that early if, if I had nothing, like if I didn't know, have any other contacts in the States, I probably would have waited till that happened. And who knows if that ever would have happened in any other way. So, yeah. Right. And now, so over the last, well, since 2018 and making the move down there and all that has happened, I guess, talk about sort of 2021 and leading up to now and your new music and sort of the progression that you've seen in yourself just over the last two or three years. It's been, I mean, it's been such a weird phase for everybody, obviously over the pandemic. Um, And I, yeah, I feel like I've grown a lot. And like I kind of said before, I feel like the more you get comfortable with yourself and the more conscious you are of what you want to do artistically, the more it kind of comes out in your work. And so, you know, I just feel like I've evolved even more as an artist and I'd like to think I've gotten better as a songwriter um, and just maybe a little more articulate about my own feelings and, and what I want to say in my music and how I want to go about saying it. Um, I feel like I've leaned into the, my pop influences a little bit more, especially over the pandemic. Like I, it's so interesting if you read any of the sort of um, statistics over how people consumed music from the start of the pandemic to the end, it's really interesting. Like a lot of people who maybe weren't familiar with how Spotify works or any of the DSPs worked kind of had the time and they were at home to kind of tinker around and be like, Hey, I can like personalize a playlist and I don't have to listen to just one genre. Like I can, you know, find these, like, I think it was such a cool period of discovery for a lot of people and the consumer and the artists alike. I think that a lot of us just, we had the downtime, we had this different sort of paradigm shift to examine our lives, (laughs) examine our careers and kind of be like, what do we really want to do? Like, what are we, is there anything we're putting off? Is there anything we're wasting time on? And I definitely went through that and was sort of like, what's something I haven't done yet in my career that I was maybe a little too scared to do, or I felt maybe a little, I'd put myself in a box and, and wasn't really even conscious of. And so just a lot of examination has sort of led to, you know, putting songs out like cheap thrills and go easy on me, like a little bit, you know, different for me in a good way and sort of uh, a little more pop leaning, a little, just more pushing the envelope in general. Um, You know, just like being a little bit more daring with my music. And I feel like that thread sort of started in the pandemic and I'm just continuing to follow it and we're just going to see what happens. Right. And as you've created your music, I saw that your early music when you were recording more in Canada, you were working with Russell Broom, who is a well-known producer up here. And then on your new music, you're working with Michael Knox. And I saw you mention Bobby Campbell, who I believe is your vocal producer. And so just talk about working with these producers and how it helps you grow as a musician. 
Um, I love and adore Russell <laughs> and I haven't seen him in so long, but like he worked with me in the early days, like just trying to formulate a lot of this newer country sound. Like we were trying to pick songs for self-medicine. He was kind of there on the ground floor of that, helping me navigate, like, I want to be a country artist. And what does that look like? You know, like I grew up listening to country music, but it's different when you're like, what is it going to look like for me to be a country yeah, artist? For sure. He was there helping sort of parse through a lot of that sound. And he was honestly, uh, the song we were all right on self-medicine. He was the one I was in a big Ellie Golding face. I was a big fan of Ellie Golding and like, love me like you do had just come out and I was obsessed with it. And then I brought, we were all right to Russell to help me produce. And he was like, I think we need to make this more like Ellie Golding. Cause that's sort of what you're, you're vibing on right now. And so like, he was very open to what my muses were and we kind of met in the middle and like, he sort of brought the side of it that I wasn't very familiar with. And I did my best to kind of bring just myself honestly to the process. And we sort of met in the middle. And I think that's just a great recipe for a producer artist relationship. And I've been lucky enough to kind of see that not just with me and Russell, but you know, Bobby and I uh, vocally, I mean, he's, he's a co-writer on a lot of my songs too. So he just kind of knows my vibe and he's a really gifted uh, track guy and producer. And so, you know, and the same with Michael, there's always this sort of synergy that has to come together where it's like, you know, check your ego at the door be honest, show up with what you think is precious to you. And the other person does the same and you, you learn where to give and take and where to compromise. And I feel like if you both like it at the end, then you've done a good job of that. And so I think uh, I've been really lucky to have a lot of, uh, you know, just really generous producers who are willing to teach me and willing to sort of give in to me when there's things that I'm like, trust me on this. I really want to do it. You know, it's been really good to, to see that relationship, you know, over I guess threefold now so it's been really good yeah exactly and so this year we've had Dancing in the Dark and Just for July as two singles now is Dancing in the Dark going to be on the upcoming album or is it Just for July is the only release single that'll be on the album uh both will be on the album um okay. actually I don't know if you can see it everywhere but I know on Apple Music if you go you can actually see the track listing of what's going to be out a lot of the songs are released already there you know, it's all the songs off California King Oh, okay. The EP that came out in 2020, and then the three singles that came out in 2021, and these two that have just come out, and we have two more that we'll wait to hear until the whole album comes out. One of them is the title track called Pinto, and so uh, yeah, it's been honestly like because of the pandemic, this is how we rolled it out, and it was to be perfectly honest, not how I imagined rolling the album out, but it's been a really cool experience, uh, and it's it's been kind of interesting to give almost every song a chance to kind of shine on its own, even though it's part of a body of work, we've been able to give each song a bit of a platform for people to kind of consume and analyze and see themselves in. And so uh, it's been a really, like I've never done anything as far as like a long album rollout like this. So it's been yeah. a really interesting journey to just see the difference now, now that I've seen both sides of it. Right. And so we talked about earlier in the conversation, sort of watching yourself progress as an artist and looking back on that first album and, and what it means to you now. So when you're taking this music from the past two or three years and putting it into an album, what is it like to listen through that album and just sort of see the progression through each song? 
Honestly, I, I feared that because yeah, a lot of uh, self-medicine or sorry, Pinto was cut in like 2019. And so my fear was that maybe by the time it came out, it would be stale to me or something. But weirdly, I feel like it's become, it still sounds relevant to me. It's almost become more relevant as to what people are listening to in country music and in pop music. There's a lot of like synthesizer. And I feel like that's so popular now with like shows like Stranger Things and a lot of 80s pop kind of coming back around. Like that was a big influence for me on the Pinto record. And so it's almost like that's become even clearer in our focus. And it's almost like these songs were were made to be coming out in 2022, despite being cut and originally slated to come out in 2020. So thankfully, you know, I don't think I'm far enough away from it yet yet where I'm like oh I'm you know I don't I don't even want to listen to that anymore like I'll still listen to the album and get really pumped for people to hear it so uh yeah like I'm a pretty harsh critic of myself but thankfully I'm still just super excited for this album to come out and for people to hear it that's awesome and that pop influence I mean it's been coming into country music ever since FGL and Cruise but do you still find yourself having to almost explain yourself and having to justify having that pop influence within your country music? Sometimes. I don't know about justify, but it's still a bit of a conversational piece for sure. Right. Um, and I think it's such a subjective thing. You know, some people have an idea of, of what they think country music is and it might be George Strait. And then somebody else is going to say Shania Twain is what country music is. And, you know, those two things could not be more different from each other, but they somehow still fall under the umbrella of country music. And so for me, yeah, I don't know that I've ever had to justify it so much as just, uh, I don't know, just showcase who I am, you know, like I just, I've never really felt a need to apologize for the way the sound is evolving because I know that I'm still showing up as an honest artist and it's, there's still a common thread there that sounds like a Sycamore song. And I think that's basically how I just judge anything that I do is it's like, do I believe this coming out of my mouth? Then I don't really care how it's dressed up, you know? And so like the thing that I love about a lot of iconic country artists is the way they can travel within their genre and, and still just be known as, you know, who they are. Like Dolly Parton went and did like disco and pop. And, you know, she's just like, like, no one can compare themselves to Dolly Parton, but I use her as the example just because nobody really thinks of her as like country artist, Dolly Parton. It's like, she's just Dolly, you know? And yeah. I think that's, that's hopefully what every artist wants to achieve is to just show up and have everyone be like, that's Sycamore, you know, however it's, however it's been filtered through. It's just, it's an honest, authentic Sycamore song. That's all I really try to measure anything by. Thank you once again so much for listening and thank you to Sycamore for stopping by and sharing her story. Be sure to check out her new album, Pinto. Please also be sure to give us a follow or even leave us a review if you enjoyed today's episode and head over to countrymusicmademe.com and sign up for our newsletter to receive an exclusive acoustic performance from Sycamore and some of our past guests. 
You can also stay up to date on all of our upcoming guests by heading to countrymusicmademe.com and hitting that subscribe button. Thank you once again so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Country Music Made Me. Music